0: This is the Education Gadfly Show. We've
1: been doing this for 12 years, and we're going to keep doing it
2: because we enjoy it. Yes, yeah, and we well, hope you do too. The 12 listeners who have them here sure appreciate <laughs> it.
1: What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at Edexcellence.net. And now, welcome our special guest coming back to the show after a long absence, the Jose Altuve of Education Reform. Andy Smerick.
2: Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm trying to punch above my weight like like Altuve. Ooh,
1: that's a good one. Hey, tell, tell our listeners who are not big baseball fans about this guy, Jose Altuve.
2: He's a marvel. He plays for the Astros. He has led the league, the National League, and I think both hits an average over the past three, four, five seasons. And he's lighting it up in the playoffs. He's something uh, special.
1: Not the National League. The American I'm League. I'm sorry. That's right. Because I... the Astros are in the American League now. You
3: can tell that I'm from the 1980s. I exactly. Still think. I should add yeah. that he's five, six and hey. also has a lot of power, speed, yeah. power. Plays second base. I'm sorry, he's Andy, he's, but he's incredible.
1: As, like, the shortest guy in education reform, I feel like I should get to be the Jose Altuve. But
2: sure. Well, uh, you're both Marvels. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate
1: that. Well, Andy, uh, you know, you are now the Morgridge Fellow in education, which is pretty cool. You've got... You get to have another name... Next to your name, something I've always wanted. Anybody out there? I am happy to put another name with my name if you're willing to give us some money. What are you yeah, Your
2: president, CEO. Yeah, what else do you need?
1: Come on, but I, I'd, I'd like some another name.
2: Okay, yeah, we, <laughs> uh,
1: so mortgage. Who's mortgage?
2: The Mortgage Foundation has funded a couple different uh, positions at AEI, and yeah. they're involved in a bunch of different education reform and related issues. Yeah. Um, so they've been very generous to AEI Correct. and others from Colorado, right? Correct. Yes. Well, they have some programs in Colorado. Yeah.
1: All right, and uh, so you were there at the course the american enterprise institute you're also the president of the maryland state board of education mr el presidente
2: well, LFA. I, and i am of course speaking here just in my own personal capacity not ah, for a board of all of these yes, others
1: blah 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 and of course you know the disclaimer i also welcome my co-host brandon Wright. welcome brandon
3: thank you how are you uh Fine. Yeah. How about you? Just one name.
1: (laughs) Just one name. Ah, Well, two names, Brandon. Right. That's it.
3: Good
0: seeing you, Brandon.
1: We'd be happy to put Brandon's uh, title up for grabs as well. So, uh, hey, lots to talk about, as always, in education reform. I should note, a little programming note here, that Andy is a bit of a competitor now. You've got your own podcast.
2: It's a short-lived, short-term podcast uh, with John Bailey, a mutual friend of ours. What
1: do you mean short-lived? You mean you're only going to do it for a little while?
2: We're only doing, uh, officially on the record, it was one season. We're doing 10 episodes. Uh, uh-huh. A new one drops this week, and then we'll see if there's enough demand for it. If we do another look season, that.
1: look at that, you guys! Uh, very nice, a season. That's what well, you're. You're, you're kind of like uh, NPR. Cereal, well, exactly. we didn't. We didn't want to
2: commit to something if uh, there was going to be no demand for it. So we uh, fuel tested this thing, and then we'll decide. See, that's
1: the difference between you. See, we we don't care if there's demand for it or not. We, we're just going to keep <laughs> doing it. We've been doing this for 12 years, and we're going to keep doing it because we enjoy it.
2: Yeah, the, and we well, hope you do too. The listeners. 12 listeners you have, I'm sure appreciate it. <laughs>
1: they do. They do. They tell us all. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> All right, let's get started with Ed Reform Update. All right, Andy, uh, we've talked about this before. I, in fact, interviewed him a few weeks ago, David Osborne, with his new book, Reinventing America's Schools, his takeoff on his classic Reinventing Government. You have an Education Next book review out about this book yourself, and uh, lo and behold, you like it.
2: It's very good,
1: and, um, and you know why, Andy? Because it's basically your book uh, with a different cover. Okay, no, I mean, no, come no, no, on, no. can we can we admit this that it's basically the exact same book that you
2: wrote a few years he ago? He did it much better and much smarter, and he has much more experience. Uh, uh, the important part of this is he has been thinking about these ideas for twenty five years, yep. and he took a bunch of theories um, to the lab, as they say. Uh, he went to a handful of cities that are doing his ideas or ideas that some of us have been working on, yep. and he explains why they're working and how.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So his basic premise, I mean, look, the shorthand, as people have been talking about this book is what, that you know, it's, it's a pro-charter school book. Correct. But, uh... You know, he's he's also someone who believes that there is a role for school districts to get into the charter school action.
2: Well, that is a part of it. He came up with his co-author, this idea of steering and rowing, this difference of if the government wants something done, it doesn't mean that they have to do it. They yep. can empower nonprofits to do it. Mm-hmm. So he is of the mind that the government should primarily be in the role of overseeing nonprofits running schools, whether that happens through the district or some other entity like in Washington, D.C., he's somewhat on the fence about, and we can go into those more details Mm -hmm. if you'd like. But what readers should know is he, uh, listeners should know, is he's very critical of traditional school districts, Mm -hmm. um, including in Washington, D.C., and although, which a lot of conservatives get angry about, he's very critical of private school choice. He is very bullish on this idea of nonprofits running schools in the public sector.
1: So let's talk about the the private school choice piece a bit, because it is the one area where you really disagree with him. Correct. I've seen you on Twitter uh, making that clear as well. What... Kind of what? What's his beef with private school choice, and uh, you know where? Why do you think he's wrong on that? Well, I think he.
2: Well, I shouldn't try to um, psychoanalyze him, but in his introduction, he does <laughs> yeah, a, a bunch of paragraphs trying to like. It's unnecessary, it seems to me. He goes after private school choice and does so in a way that I just think is unfair and unnecessary for the book. He is someone who comes from the left. And I think he's trying to make this argument so his book is really aimed at people on the left and people who work in school systems. And so I think this was a bone thrown to people who don't like private school choice. I I wish it hadn't been in there, Mm -hmm. but I think politically he decided he should do it. Yeah.
1: I mean, I don't know, Brandon. I mean, look, we've written a lot about how we think private school choice programs should look a lot more like charter schools, that there should be (laughs) accountability for results, for example. And that uh, the reason that perhaps we've seen so many private school choice programs lately Show lackluster results, at least in terms of test scores, is because their schools are not held accountable for results. There's not a mechanism, at least not everywhere to kick schools out of the program if they are just getting terrible results academically. And maybe if there were, then we'd get better outcomes. And if you care about outcomes, especially for poor minority kids, this is an issue, right?
3: And I, Is is, is his critique primarily outcome-based?
2: I, I I haven't read the no. book. I've just read your review. Well, there are several. Uh, he thinks that he doesn't like that they can be religious, that they, there are some unaccountable schools in it. Um, but you and I, Mike, we agree on this, which is there, and I make this case in the review, There are private school choice programs that fit his seven criteria way better than traditional school districts do, nonprofit operators and accountability and parental choice and so forth. And for some reason, he felt it necessary at the beginning to really go hard at private school choice. With that said, this book is very good. It's very readable. You can tell a former journalist did it. He tells the story through a bunch of different anecdotes and characters that are compelling, but he ends up in this place that a Mm 25-year history of reform is leading to great results and fundamentally transforming what it means to be public education in urban America.
1: All right. Now let's talk about an area where you are both wrong. Okay. And there's no debate about that. All right. No, and it's curriculum. He says almost nothing about curriculum. You say basically nothing about curriculum in your review. The only time curriculum is referred to, it's as one of those things that we should devolve to the school level, you know, like uh, personnel policies and budgets, you know, and the assumption is, you know, if we could just, free up educators to build their own curriculum or choose the one they like best, great things will happen. Uh, and I would argue and you know the, that history is not on your side on this one, that actually curriculum matters a whole lot and that that is one of these areas where having a perhaps systemic approach makes more sense.
2: So I disagree. Um, I think that what we've seen is some of the best advancements in curriculum and standards and so forth um, have actually happened thanks to chartering, thanks to this new space that is out there. What I think listeners should know is he makes an argument that's similar to being a pro-capitalism argument that doesn't talk about which kind of firms should exist or a pro-democracy argument that doesn't talk about who should be elected. The point is this book is about a system. If you create the right environment, good things happen. Mm -hmm. And he talks about if you create the right systems for public education, nonprofit operators, and kind of accountability and funding systems, then good things like curriculum can happen. So neither he nor I, I should speak for myself, I would never say that curriculum doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, it's the most important thing happening in classes, but you get that great result, I believe, not by forcing it through a single system, Mm -hmm. but by having a kind of environment where great things can happen. So
3: something that seems to go against that, and I was really surprised to read it in your review, was apparently uh, Osborne's stance that you shouldn't have more than one authorizer in a given area that seems to go directly against the sort of capitalist um, sort of competition based
2: open market approach. I would, what yeah, is his reason for that? Well, so this is the second area that I kind of nip at him in my review that uh, he deals with this pretty quickly. And this is a general view. I think of, among a lot of system reformers on the left where the government they view should be the regulator and there should be a single government entity, a single authorizer like they have in D.C. Some of us are a bit more skeptical of that. We actually think that if you have too much power in one government body, Mm -hmm. that it's too constraining. So I think my subject
1: to capture.
2: That's right. So like in Ohio or Michigan, where there are a whole lot of
1: authorizers in no, some no, no, places. No, 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 You like, don't want that, <laughs> that Well, that, the bad, well, I mean, exactly. that's, that's the other far. extreme. Yes, is, yes, yes. So there yes.
2: is a potential, at least the theory, is that you could have a small number of yeah. multiple authorizers that enable the space of yeah. chartering to
1: be. A handful,
2: perhaps. That, that's right. I, now, I should say, Sorry. I got this wrong. Ten years ago, I was much more in the view of 10, 12, 15 authorizers are great. I'm not yet in the one authorizer yeah. per area, yeah. but I'm... A handful. Yeah.
1: And look, and I I would just, one last point on curriculum. I would say, I I just wrote an article uh, for Principal Magazine, that goes out to elementary school principals, about what KIPP and some other charter networks are doing very recently, like as in the last few years, to finally embrace a strong approach to curriculum, especially for English language arts. And it's a lot like the stuff that E.D. Hirsch has been arguing about for 30 years, Mm -hmm. which is you've got to teach real content in the early elementary grades, which by the way, in my Maryland Public school, Mr. President, is still not happening. Uh, but <laughs> guess what? You know, for for 23 of the 25 years we've been in charter schooling, it hasn't happened in charter schooling either. So, I don't think that's fair. Oh, Andy, it ha- and like you look, oh, has. Like what Eva has done, Achievement at, First. And if you look at results, what you see is very little progress on the reading side. More progress in math, but very, little, very little progress when it comes to uh, English language arts. And I think it's because uh, the charter schools also got, they got the curriculum thing wrong and so I, I don't know i just think that we have to we we are dealing in education and so you, you and i have a lot in common andy and, mm-hmm. and with david and we are systems people who think about politics and yep. think about it we're coming at it from a political science perspective but i think that our achilles heel is you know that we don't have that education experience of being inside the classroom and i think what we're learning is that that curriculum is is something special that that when john white talks about Not standards-based reform, but curriculum-based reform. Uh, I think we've just underappreciated what an important lever it is. It is first among equals, I would say, uh, with with other areas. And uh, the fact that David doesn't talk about it at all is is a big weakness of the book. I disagree. All right. There you go. Hey, fix those Maryland schools, would you?
2: Oh, come on now. Huh? I'm I'm serious. Checker and Mike, uh, uh, David Steiner and I, it's a fun board. Keep working on it.
1: Keep working on it. All I'm asking for, a little history, a little science in the early grades. You know, wouldn't kill anybody. will not kill anybody, Andy. You know?
2: Well, you're like setting me up as like an anti-curriculum guy. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I want to no, see some leadership here. No, curriculum is extraordinarily important. But as you know, in states and in districts and schools, once um, higher levels of government start telling people what to do on the curriculum front, uh-huh. things start to get, there's some tension involved. Mm-hmm. There's healthy resistance from teachers on having people like me tell them what to do in the classroom. And I respect that.
1: All right. There we go. All right, Andy. Very well said. Thanks for coming back. I hope you'll come on more often.
2: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been
1: too long. All right. Good. All right. Again, Andy Smerich at AEI. And now it is time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. David Griffith, welcome back to the show.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me, Mike.
1: David stepping in for Amber, as he is wont to do from time to time. Yep. Hey, and, you know, we, we were talking about baseball earlier, but I won't even ask you a baseball question because... That's see, very
3: wise.
0: David's
1: from Portland. Uh, I
3: really like soccer.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: that, as, as people in Oregon do. I
0: Football? did like soccer before we didn't qualify for the World Cup.
1: No, no, now no. Now I'm no. indifferent. It's not that we didn't qualify. It's that we're boycotting the World Cup in Russia. That's right. That's my line, That's and right. I'm sticking to it. That's what we should say. We should say if we had a different president who wasn't in bed with Vladimir Putin, we could say something like that. <laughs> Anyways, you don't like that image? You're right. No, 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 no. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, uh, but I digress. What's uh, what's happening, David, in the world of research?
0: Yeah. So, uh, we got a cool study today, Mike. It's called, Can Superstition Create a Self-Fulfilling Prophecy? School Outcomes of Dragon Children of China.
1: Wait, what? <laughs> That's right.
0: (laughs) Really? Yep. Uh, the studies by Nasi Mohan, sorry, uh, and Han Yu. And basically, it uses the uh, Chinese year of the zodiac or zodiac signs as, as a source of exogenous variation to try no. to study the expectations, um, the impact of parental expectations on kids.
1: Now, uh, are we variation? sure that this is a real Oxogenes? study and not one of those ones where they, they, you know, social scientists are trying to trick us uh, into believing that this is a real study?
0: Uh, uh, this is very much a real study. In fact, like, there's actually, I've, I've found many other studies that have used this, just not so many in education necessarily. And uh, it's cool. Like, the year of the dragon is... A lucky year in China. Okay. Uh, And I also learned in the course of the study that the year of the sheep is unlucky. Mm -hmm. Um, So you want to avoid that.
3: Uh, And 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 the number four, I think.
0: There's 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 a lot lot of good luck and bad luck running around. Okay. And and basically, uh, the study looks at outcomes for kids who were born in the year of the dragon controlling for all kinds of things and Mm -hmm. finds that they do better and and then it can essentially controls for parental expectations and finds that the gap disappears between the kids and the others so the the positive channel for how these kids are doing better is essentially that they are born in the year of the dragon their parents think they're lucky they have higher expectations of them as a result and then it sort of becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy I totally
3: buy this. Like like this 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 makes perfect sense to me like from a common sense standpoint. I mostly buy it. Mike, what do you think?
1: Uh, I, I think that we are discounting the possibility that there's actually something to the Year of the Dragon. I mean, I know, how do you really account for that?
0: Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent point, Mike, and, and maybe the U.S. soccer team sure. should look into yeah. it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... it's
1: they're, I was kidding about that, of course. But, right. but, uh, but no, no, it is interesting is that, it, I mean, of course, where my head goes to right away is I think, wow, well, how could we... How could we, you know, use this in in some interesting way that if, if you could just inflate parent expectations, then kids would do better. That that's great.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I, think that seems to make, I think in life in general, expectations are incredibly important. I couldn't agree with you more,
0: and I mean, it really takes me back to my teaching days. I mean, obviously, teachers try to have high expectations mm-hmm. of students, and parents, you know, are even more important than teachers, obviously, in terms of their impact on the kid, and it was something I struggled with as as a teacher, right, trying to keep my expectations high, even when I could tell my kids were struggling, mm-hmm. right, and they were behind, and they were facing challenges, uh, and yet we just know... Like it's so intuitive, right? That if you lower expectations for kids, they're not going to mm. they're not going to exceed them, right?
1: I mean, you know, could you send a letter to every parent saying, you know, we want you to know that we we tested your child in in kindergarten and we find them to be gifted in some way?
0: You could do that. I mean, I mean we could. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we could. Right. We could. We could engage in false advertising. It could be a national. Well,
1: and maybe it's not false. You know, I, I think about this. Uh, my my own son was doing some special testing for special ed services uh, for a delay, and they do this whole ba- all this whole battery of stuff that sort of extra uh than than they typically do yeah uh, and of course you know there are some areas where yes you find out that there are some delays but then there's other areas where like oh my god he's off the charts next y or z right. you know and you think wow mm-hmm. my kid's actually a genius so maybe we you know we could do more of that we do that kind of battery test on everybody and and tell parents that on something at least your kid is a genius and that raises expectations
0: yeah yeah i mean and it could, and and it's, it could, it, it could work it's it's interesting because i mean they actually control for um supposedly for cognitive ability in middle school and they still find an effect. Yep. Um which I mean it suggests, right, that there is something going on there b- beyond um you know that the kids are somehow exceeding their predicted outcomes given their cognitive ability. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know what the lever is that we pull, Mike. I mean, <laughs> yes it, it is sort of a huge problem when you think about it, right? We're always complaining about how uh, you know American parents are too satisfied with the education system. Yeah. Right. And maybe if we were less satisfied and we had higher expectations of the system and of kids, Mm -hmm. you know, we would get further.
3: It's probably also the reverse danger too, right? Certain, certain people, I think, sort of embrace high expectations and strive to reach them. Whereas other people, if the expectations are too high or too unfair, Mm -hmm. will just sort of uh, push back against them.
0: Yeah. I Um, mean, I think my, my take on it, I don't know, I'm not a parent yet, so what do I know? But it, you know, is... I think expectations, the most important one is around effort, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it, not everybody can be Albert Einstein, right? But sure. everybody can try their hardest. Right. And if we had higher expectations of effort, there's real, I don't see what the downside is to that. Really. Agreed. And Agreed. even
1: Albert Einstein said that 90% is, is, uh, what is it? Perspiration? 10% is inspiration. I, but that's probably. I, was, that's not, that's I, not I, it. <laughs> not perspiration. Yeah, yeah, sure. Something else. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I don't even know if you even said you that. You know, I think but, it I've seen that a, was? It? Yeah, yeah. I've seen that on a poster somewhere. All right. So this is fascinating, David. Good. Any, anything else you want to share with us? We keep, I, we keep Bru- cutting you off.
0: And, well, according to the internet, Bruce Lee, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, and Vladimir Putin were all born mm. in the year of the dragon. Mm. So there's clearly something to
3: it. Mm. Is the year of the dragon every... How often is every, every 12 it? Every 12 years. Well, I, I imagine you could take any year and be like, hey, a lot of impressive people were born yeah. on this once every 12 okay, years. Okay, Brandon is skeptical.
0: Yeah. Scale. And, uh, <laughs> and
1: uh, let's just keep this mind. Next time the TIMS or PISA scores come out, we're going to have to adjust for this, people. Yep. Yep. All right. Okay. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. That's all the time that we've got for education reform, as well as, uh, you know, thinking about the things like the Year of the Dragon. Until next time, I'm Brendan Rowe. And I'm Mike Petrulli the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing up.
2: The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.